Well, good morning. As Pastor Bill said, my name is Paul Brandis. Uh, I'm the new associate pastor here in the fellowship program, and my wife Ashley and I are thrilled to be here at Christ Community and in Kansas City. You all have been so kind uh, and generous in receiving us, and the barbecue really is as good as advertised. So uh, kudos to you. You're not overselling that um, as native Kansas Cityans. Um, we just really appreciate being here and are so thrilled for it. Well, this morning's message is the third in our summer series entitled, Does It Really Matter? If you've missed the last couple weeks, the idea behind the series is to take the truths of our statement of faith and ask that question of them. Do they really matter? And as we've seen the first two weeks, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Week one, it really does matter what we believe about God. Week two, it really does matter what we believe about the Bible. And as we'll see today, yes, it really does matter what we believe about what's wrong with the world. Would you bow your head with me as I ask God to bless our time together in his word? Dear Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as we open it, I would get out of the way and that you would increase as I decrease and that the spirit would be on this place and all of our hearts and souls and minds would be convicted by the areas in our life that we have not surrendered to you. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to surrender any sin in our lives to you and to know and love you better. For your honor and glory, in your name we pray. Amen. As I was preparing this week, I came across something shocking. I actually found someone who doesn't think there's anything wrong with the world. Well, at least that was the title of his blog post. It had to be a blog, right? What's wrong with the world? Not a dang thing. Except he didn't say dang. <laughs> What's interesting, though, is that he doesn't argue that the world is perfect. Probably because you can't really make that argument, in my estimation. No, there is far too much observable evil and suffering to make the claim that the world is perfect. And so he doesn't. Instead, his charge to us, the readers, is to stop looking for perfection and love more. In other words, since it seems as though the world will never be perfect, we should stop hoping and striving for that. Instead, we should just accept things the way they are and throw up our hands and love more. My guess is that the author of this blog post would agree wholeheartedly with the famous Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. But is this true? Is lowering our standards, giving up any hope of a better world, and loving more the answer? I'll lay my cards out on the table early this morning. I don't think it is. I don't think that lowering our standards and giving up hope is the answer. And can I tell you why? It's because you were never meant to live this way. You were never meant to live this way. In other words, the world and you isn't the way it ought to be. 
And don't you feel that? Not only is it easy to observe the brokenness and wrongness in this world, but don't you feel that tension within yourself? I don't even necessarily think you need to be a Christian to agree with what I'm saying right now. If we're honest with one another, aren't there times where you know that something is just a bit broken, a bit off? Like when you snap impatiently at the people you love most. Or when you let fear and anxiety overtake you just one more time. Or you cave in on the internet again. Or you buy something you know you can't afford. Or you allow what others think about you control you again. Or you can just feel your selfishness. And all of that leaves you even more hollow and empty than you were before. And we're supposed to just accept these things and press forward as though there isn't really something wrong? I don't think so. Especially when the Bible tells us explicitly and unapologetically what truly is wrong. You see, God's word doesn't leave the answer up to guesswork. And Romans 5, the passage that Bill just read a few moments ago, a complicated one, to say the least, is one of the many places that names the problem. We meet the problem just four words into the passage, the beginning of Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin So there it is. As the Bible tells it, sin is the problem. Sin is why things aren't the way they ought to be. Sin is what's wrong with the world. And today, we're going to spend some time getting to know it a bit better. Our passage lays out three important truths about sin in particular. Sin is an imposter, sin is pervasive, and sin brought death. First, sin is an imposter. Look back with me at verse 12 again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, stop there with me. Did you catch that? Sin came into the world. Paul's point, while implicit, is clear. If sin came into the world, then what he's saying is there was a time when it wasn't in the world. And if we go back to the beginning, then what we see is that sin wasn't supposed to come into the world. It wasn't by design. It wasn't part of the plan. God did not create this world with sin in it. And oh, that is so incredibly important. Sin, brokenness, death, and so on. None of that existed in the world God made. It wasn't by design. Sin is an imposter. The world God made, the one you and I were created for, the world of Genesis 1 and 2, it was perfect. You and I were also created in God's image. 
an incredibly important truth. Being created in God's image means that we were, in significant ways, created to be like him, created for perfection, created for relationship, created for eternity, created to love, obey, and worship God only in perfect relationship with him. And also, created with the ability to choose, to obey or disobey, to say yes to God and no to him. And that's exactly what played out in Genesis 3, isn't it? Satan, the tempter, the deceiver, came offering a counterfeit happiness. God's holding out on you, he said. You can't really trust him. You don't need him. You'll be happier if you just trust me. Go ahead, choose your own way. And in that terrible moment with Adam and Eve where they did choose their own way, everything changed. Selfishly, we now trade God's way for our own way. But it gets worse. You see, all the created order began to come unraveled. Everything had gone horribly wrong, not just humanity's relationship with God. Disease, natural disasters, brokenness at every turn. And it's all our fault. As we sit in the truth, the reality, and the problem of sin this morning, just remember, we opened that door. We let the imposter in. Every horrible thing, every nightmare, every broken heart, come on in. We like to blame God because it gets us off the hook. Earthquakes, war, cancer, divorce, deformity, we shake our finger at him and ask, why God, why? But we forget that this is not the world he made, not like this. Remember, sin is an imposter, an imposter that we brought in. The world isn't as it ought to be because of us. None of this mess would have existed if we hadn't rebelled. Sin truly is that bad. We can't pin this stuff on God. Remember, he didn't intend for you or I to live this way. The author, Donald Miller, captures this truth powerfully. In his book, Blue Like Jazz, he tells of a friend who was cheating on his wife. This friend came to him and confessed the sin. Miller writes, designed for good, my friend was sputtering and throwing smoke. The soul was not designed for this, I thought. We were supposed to be good, all of us. We were supposed to be good, end quote. Again, sin is an imposter. It has become a part of our everyday landscape, so to speak. And so we have become desensitized to it desensitized to it so much so that I think sometimes we forget that this isn't the way it's supposed to be and that sin is an imposter. We forget those things because we're so used to sin being in us and around us. And how quickly we also forget 
that it's us who have to own up to this sin problem in the world. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking. Wait a second. I, I don't remember being in the garden when the door was first opened to sin. I didn't send out an invitation asking him to come into the world and mess everything up. Why do I have to own up to this sin problem? Isn't this all Adam's fault? Well, the answer to that question of Adam's culpability is a complicated one. Isn't the sin problem all Adam's fault? Yes. And no. You see, like it or not, sin is far more pervasive than we could ever imagine. It affects every single one of us. And that is the second truth revealed about sin in our passage. Look back with me again at verse 12. We'll read a little bit more this time. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Stop there. Death spread to all men. Jump down to the beginning of verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Again, stop there. How widespread and pervasive is the phrase, all men? And I must say here that the word men doesn't let the, woman in, the women in the room off the hook. The understanding should be humanity. Sin spread to all humanity. Sin is universal. Sin is pervasive. It affects everyone, and it has ever since we opened the door and invited it in. But you might still be saying, okay, so it's pervasive. It now affects everyone. But how still is this problem pinned on me? Again, I wasn't there when Adam and Eve first rebelled. In fact, it's sounding like I'm the victim in all of this. The key phrase is at the end of verse 12, where Paul says that all sinned. Here, he means that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We're all included. This is the doctrine of original sin, and it's hard to get our minds around in an individualistic culture like ours. For other cultures with a strong sense of collective group identity, this isn't nearly as difficult. But for us in the West, where we are so individualistic, this is really hard. It doesn't sit well. But you see, Adam as the first man, was our representative. In fact, the word Adam is also the Hebrew word for man or mankind. And don't get me wrong, Adam absolutely was a real person, but he was also more than that. He was mankind, and, and quite literally, Adam was the source of every person who's ever lived. Think of it. Children are genetically, socially, personally, emotionally, and morally the products of their parents. There's just no way around it. The sins of the father do affect the sins, or I'm sorry, the sins of the father do affect the son. It's true to life and it's true to experience. 
And it's no different with our father Adam and our mother Eve. In a strange but very real sense, we were there with Adam when he took the fruit. It's a bit of an odd thought, I know, but our genetic wiring has been one of sin and guilt ever since. None of us has a fresh start, so to speak. Author Gary Willis has said it well. There is no clean slate of nature unscribbled on by all one's forebearers. At one time, a woman of unsavory enough experience was delicately but cruelly referred to as having a past. The doctrine of original sin states that humankind, in exactly the same sense, has a past. End quote. You and I have a past. And really, as unfair as that may still sound to you, do you think you would have done any better? I know that I have rebelled against God time and time again in the same manner that Adam did. And if I'm going to be completely honest this morning, there is no doubt in my mind I would have taken the fruit. G.K. Chesterton, a famous theologian and author, was once asked what was wrong with the world. The very same question we're trying to answer today. His famous two-word reply is incredibly powerful. What's wrong with the world? I am, Chesterton answered. I am. He hit the nail on the head. You and I are the problem with the world, and we're worse than we think because sin is worse than we think. Now, here's the other half of the sin is pervasive coin. Not only does sin affect all of humanity, but it affects us in every way. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Now, let me remind us of what total depravity is not. It certainly does not mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be and that there is no good left in us. Far from it. The fact that we were created in God's image was not removed with sin, but marred with sin. What total depravity means is that sin affected humanity in every possible way. There isn't an inch left of us that isn't affected. Let's take this glass of water that I have here and ask what would happen or what's going to happen, because I'm going to do it, when I squeeze this water enhancer into it. Every inch of this water is affected, is it not? But would we say that this isn't water? No. It might not be as healthy for me to drink now, but it is still water. It's just that every inch of it has been affected. And it's the same with sin. We're still humans, still created in God's image, loved by him, created for him. But sin, in a capital S sense, has gotten in the way. 
It has affected and marred us, every part of us, and has taken us from the perfect ought into the tragic is that we currently experience. How does this all sit with you this morning? If you're anything like me, you sense that what I'm saying might be true, and yet you still try to fix the problem yourself. It's terribly conflicting. You think, I'll just try a little harder to be a better person. Surely there's something I can do to tip the scales for me. I'm not really that bad. But sin at its core isn't ultimately about all the bad things you do or the good things you don't do. If it were, then maybe there'd be something you could do about it. Sins, small s, are a problem to be sure. Breaking rules and avoiding good, clearly that's an issue. But they're only the symptoms of the deeper problem. Sin, capital S. The disease of sin. This disease has us constantly trying to make other things, even good things, more central to our identity than our relationship with God. And if we're to find the proper solution to the problem, which is sin, then we must define sin in that way. Tim Keller, pastor and author, gives this definition of sin. Sin is not just doing bad things but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship with God. This is idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. And we all do this in many more ways than we'd like to admit or even than we know. And yet I must keep reminding us this morning, you were never meant to live this way. The bad news has so far been this morning that sin is an imposter and that sin is pervasive. Unfortunately, the worst news is yet to come. The third truth that our passage screams about sin is that it brought death. Sin brought death. I need to share a sobering thought with you this morning. In our sin, we're not just bad people. We are dead people. In our sin, we're not just bad people. We are dead people. Again, we'll return to verse 12, and this time we will read through verse 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
You may have noticed that Paul distracts himself just a bit at the end of verse 12. He takes a short detour from his overall argument to address God's law given to Moses in the Old Testament, something that would have been incredibly important to his original readers. And in this detour, Paul isn't saying that sin wasn't a problem before the law, though it may sound that way at the end of verse 13. Remember, as we've just defined it, sin, capital S, is about so much more than just rule-breaking or law-breaking. No, Paul's point is that whether there were rules to break or not, laws to break or not, the result of of sin, the result of sin was the same, death. And it's fair to ask at this point, what sort of death are we talking about here? Well, of course, there's physical death, and that's the first thing that we usually think about. How does the joke go? There's only two things you can be sure of in this life, death and taxes. And humans have been dying, physically speaking, for a pretty long time, no? We see it everywhere, 100% death rate. And yet, we still fight it, fear it, grieve over it, and absolutely despise it. The only conclusion I can make from that is that you and I were never meant for it. You were never meant to live this way, and you were never meant for death. But it's not just physical death that ails us. No. It's spiritual death as well. Think of it. Adam and Eve didn't drop dead physically at the base of the tree, did they? No, their physical death came much later, But their relationship with God changed in an instant. There was shame and hiding, knowledge of their guilt, and blame at every turn. They had enjoyed sweet, perfect, and full fellowship with God, walking with Him in the garden. Now there was distance, hiding, separation. That's spiritual death right there. Separation from God. Total death. Sin brought death. Of this, our passage is clear. However, our passage also tells us of another result of sin. You see, sin didn't just bring death. A couple other people came along for the ride. Verse 16 of our passage makes clear that sin also brought with it judgment and condemnation. If it wasn't already clear from my message this morning, sin is the worst thing. I don't say that lightly, and I don't mean it as hyperbole. Quite literally, sin is the worst thing. And sin and God are utterly opposed. God's character, his attributes, his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness, these truths about God demand that he judge and condemn and destroy sin. But judgment isn't the most popular subject. It can make us uncomfortable. It can make us squirm. But I've discovered something really interesting about judgment. 
We're only uncomfortable with it when we're talking about our sin being judged. Isn't that true? Think about it. When some truly heinous and awful sin is committed, think of any of the number of tragic school shootings that have happened. What's the response? What is the public outcry? Judgment, justice, it's sought after and it is demanded. And as well, it should be. But what happens when the tables are turned? What I'm arguing this morning is that sin is so bad and so heinous that God is going to judge all of it, including yours and including mine. Now, what happens when we face that truth? The tune changes, doesn't it? Instead of calling for and demanding judgment and justice, we beg for mercy. In fact, we become indignant. If God really can do anything, why can't he just forgive and forget about sin? Why is he so angry all the time? Haven't you heard these things said about God? Haven't you thought these things about God? We can't have it both ways. Either there should be justice and judgment for the problem of sin, or there shouldn't. Well, the problem is sin, and it's worse than you and I could ever possibly imagine. You were never meant to live this way, but sin broke in as an imposter in a more pervasive way than we will ever comprehend and brought with it death and judgment. That's the bad news. And oh, I am bursting at the seams to tell you the good news. I have been all morning because you see the beautiful thing about our passage is that it actually focuses more on the good news. But I had to pace us. Remember, if we don't properly, properly understand and sit in the problem, then the solution means nothing. Was it enjoyable to sit in the reality of sin this morning? No, of course not. But was it necessary? Yes, it was. More necessary than we could ever imagine. So what is it? What is the good news? Let's return to our passage to find the answer. Look with me at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Jump down with me to verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Do you see it? It's all over our passage. Adam, sin, judgment, condemnation, and death are the bad news. But Jesus, grace, freedom, and life are the good news. Don't miss this. Sin isn't the end of the story. Oh, it certainly could have been, right? 
I mean, God would have had every right to wipe the earth clean and forget about humans after our sinful rebellion. But he didn't do that, did he? No. In spite of us, he pursued us. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 captures this truth so powerfully. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. Thanks be to God for the good news of his glorious gospel. Sin brought death to all people, yes, but sin isn't the end of the story. Oh, so far from it. The good news part of the story culminated on a cross. 2,000 years ago, when the Son of God, guilty of nothing, gave his life as a ransom for the sin of many. God pursued us in spite of us, I said. How far did he have to go? Well, Philippians 2 tells us, our Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself and obediently pursued us to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, the night before he went to the cross, for your sake and mine, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples. He knew it was time. And so he took his final opportunity to institute the sacred and important practice that we call communion. A practice that we observe almost every week here at Brookside. You see, Jesus' death on the cross was so central to the good news of the gospel that he wanted us, his followers, to have a regular and physical reminder of his sacrifice for our sins. When we come to this table, we must remember both the good news of Jesus' death for the forgiveness of our sins, but also the bad news of those sins. We must remember both of those. Well, I haven't explicitly answered the question of why the problem of sin matters. Hopefully it has come through. If you don't understand the nature and severity of the problem, then you don't have the right solution. And in this case, the difference between having a solution and not having it is the difference, quite literally, between death and life. Please, choose life. Come to grips with sin, with your sin, and then run to Jesus. That's your application today. Come to grips with your sin, repent of it, and run to Jesus. He died so you wouldn't have to. And that death, and his coming to life, and it providing a way for us to deal with our sin is what we will now celebrate together. We have four communion stations and we have a free time where you can come when you are ready. Gather in groups of four to five and partake. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate. You only have to have embraced the good news of Jesus. The good news that sin isn't the end of the story. 
and how beautiful good news that is. But if that isn't you, and you're just here checking Jesus out, we're so glad you joined us. Use this time to test what you've heard. Is sin really the problem? Is it really that bad? And is Jesus the solution? Ask Jesus to show himself to you. He is pursuing you. The communion station in that direction has gluten-free elements, if that's something you need. And as Bill mentioned during our community life moment, if you need prayer, or if you need to talk to someone about this, please don't hesitate to do that in the back near the sound booth during communion. Well, on the night that he was to be betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And in the same way, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, or the, of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for not giving up on us when we rebelled against you and opened the door to sin. Thank you even more that sin isn't the end of the story and that you made a way for us to have a right relationship with you once again through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to always have a full and true understanding of sin since this will point us more and more to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.